Andy Inaspic. Stars Lawrence Harvey, Mia Farrow, Tom Courtney, The Dandy. A double agent with orders to track down and assassinate himself. Hey everyone, welcome to the Contiki Podcast, the place to drop in and get interesting double feature film recommendations from your favorite artists, directors, and musicians. I'm your host, Eric Mahoney, coming to you from quarantine in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you for joining me on this very special episode. You know, it, it takes a really unique artist to not only stand the test of time, but to produce compelling and meaningful work you know, over the course of, of many decades. It's a small club. I'd say most of the time, people whose work I like fall into two camps. One, they were around for a brief time and, and made some incredible work, and, and for one reason or another, faded out. And two, people who continue to exist for a long time, but did you know really great work for just a small amount of that time. It's kind of like going to see the band, where you suffer through the new songs to, to hear the deep cuts. But my guest today has not only thrived his entire career, um, but he's continued to take risks and evolve and grow while still producing work from a really unique and interesting point of view. I'm talking about film director and musician Jim Jarmusch. For those of you unfamiliar with Jim's long catalog, uh, you know briefly it includes uh, Stranger Than Paradise, Down By Law, Mystery Train, Broken Flowers, uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, and that just kind of scratches the surface. He's also in the band Squirrel with uh, producer Carter Logan. Um, they have several albums under their belt and have scored some of Jim's uh, most recent work as well. He's also the guy that both Neil Young and Iggy Pop tapped to make documentaries about them. So there's that little nugget as well. So, uh, you know, instead of prolonging this further, let, let's, let's just get into it. Let's go to the source and head on over to get a double feature recommendation from director Jim Jarmusch. Hey, Jim. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm okay. Thanks for uh, thinking of me. I appreciate it. Oh, man. Thanks for hopping on the call. It's nice to reconnect with you. And um, I was very excited to uh, to hear your picks for some of this stuff. So it's, it's cool to have you oh, on, man. Cool. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you. So, yeah, you got it. So what have you been up to? What's uh, how's, how's quarantine treating you? Uh, you know, it's, I'm up, uh, up in Ulster County, so I'm sort of removed from the world. I have, uh, my little recording studio and, and a little art room up here. I have yesterday, uh, bear visitations and, uh, lots <laughs> of wild animals. I, the day before yesterday, I was watching a mink chasing chipmunks <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with no success. And this morning I was watching a sharp-chinned hawk hunting for smaller birds. So it's kind of like a wildlife menagerie show up here. But, you know, I never, May is like my, May and October are my favorite, like, most psychedelic months, you know. So I'm rarely able to just sit and watch May kind of roll by. So hopefully that's going to happen and uh, I'll be ecstatic. Otherwise, I don't know what to say, you know. 
I've been thinking about movies where the world just stops, you know, like in uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still or I think in Earth sure. versus the Flying Saucers, you know. <laughs> it sort of feels like that, like, you know, moving among frozen motion. But it's interesting. It's, you know, I don't know. I hope people learn something from it. My faith in humanity isn't so uh, deep lately, but whatever. We'll see what happens. I, I'm with I'm with you. I, I keep peeking peeking around the corner to see if Rod Serling is standing there as well and has that feel to it for sure. Um, yeah. But I think I think they're you know I think in the best of circumstances what we're what we're looking at though is is uh, an opportunity and I think that p- if people can you know really relish in that fact and and take hold of that I think that you know. On my most optimistic days, I look at it that way anyways, uh, where, where it seems well, like a chance for us to, to reset and to reevaluate and hopefully collectively, you know, take aim at, at, a, at a greater good here because there's certainly enough darkness to go around, that's for sure. Yeah, and I, I hope that's the case, and I hope people just use this to unite instead of divide and... Uh just take a moment to think about priorities and the the amount of change just ecologically on the planet from giving it a, a breather is kind of astounding you know the it is it the, is the decrease in pollution the way animals are behaving you know so i don't know i'm just tired of human centrism you know I'm sick of yeah. it. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a proselytizer, but I'm vegan, so I don't understand. It's the t- 21st century. Why are you humans eating animals? You know, I don't get it. If people, you know, just learn a little bit about what animal agriculture does to the planet, it's pretty shocking and bad. But I don't know. I've been a vegetarian for over 30 years. I've become vegan in the last, like, within the last year, really. But, uh, and certain friends of mine, like, uh, Riza from the Wu Tang is vegan as his method man now. And, uh, I heard a nice interview where they asked Riza, so which of these three reasons, um, have caused you to become vegan? Is it for your own health? Is it because you don't want to eat animals? Or is it because you're afraid of the consequences for the planet? And Riza just said, yes. <laughs> you know, all three, motherfucker, you know? Exactly. So anyway, I don't know. I, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a militant vegan, but I'm trying to do my part. So whatever. Right on. Perfect. Well, have you been watching a lot of but films hey, since you're, since you have they uh, yeah, man, I'll tell you, my my narcotic is uh, the Criterion channel, which I have. Oh, so, I just got uh, that. I just got that. I got that prior to the oh, world coming man. to a stop, which I'm so happy about. Isn't that the best? Yeah, it is the best. I am a total junkie, man. Each night I'm jonesing for what movies I'm going to watch. So I've been watching a lot on the Criterion channel. I've also been watching a lot of... Uh, like pre-code films from that I uh, record off of uh, Turner Classics. Um, and then I've re- been revisiting some films that I hadn't seen in a long time, like uh, They Live by John Carpenter really resonated, really resonated yeah. for me recently. 
but sure. I, yeah, I've been watching a lot of crime films, film noir, pre-code films, and then just all kinds of stuff on Criterion. I just, um, I start, you know, I start jonesing. I almost, you know, this isn't true, but I feel like I get the shakes when I'm like, okay, turn it on. What are we going to watch, man? You know? So yeah, three cheers for Criterion. And in fact, um, both of the films that I chose to talk to you about are, are from the Criterion channel and they are, there are a lot of things that connect them for me, but they are also in a section right now uh, of films scored by Quincy Jones. So Criterion I noticed that when you sent that over. Oh, uh, man. Yeah, and I didn't realize that until, you know, I, I, I watched them both. I was aware, of course, uh, of Quincy Jones. I watched them in the last weeks before I knew about doing your, your podcast. So... But anyway, they're, they have very beautiful scores, actually, by Quincy Jones, and they're both from the late 60s. So my two films are, the first one is A Deadly Affair. Uh, it's from 1967, a Sidney Lumet film. Uh, Sidney Lumet's a quite a great director of a variety of types of films, like Dog Day Afternoon, Twelve Angry Men, Serpico, uh, fail safe. So, so he made a lot of interesting films, but I love this film. It's with, uh, James Mason and, uh, Simone Signore. Uh, it also has Maximilian Schell. And, uh, both of these films that I've chosen are British, uh, set, uh, I would call them Euro spy films. They're both sort of spy, you know, spy movies from the late 60s and both set primarily in London. So uh, that's the first one. Uh, the other one is from a year later, 1968. It's called A Dandy in Aspic. And it is uh, the last film that the great director Anthony Mann directed. In fact, he died during the production and the film was the remaining parts were directed by Lawrence Harvey, who stars in the film, um, along with Mia Farrow in her very first film performance, I, I believe. So uh, some people, yeah, some people were not real happy, I guess, with Lawrence Harvey's directing, but the film holds together really well. Uh, it's a, uh, it's kind of a great movie because it's a, a double agent spy movie where, Lawrence Harvey is, uh, works for British intelligence, but is in fact, uh, an assassin, a Russian assassin. So they assign him to eliminate this assassin, which is in fact himself. <laughs> so it's a pretty complex spy thriller, but a really great plot and, uh, a really great kind of underplayed, uh, performance by Lawrence Harvey and a great Mia, Mia Farrow performance, I, I must say. So that's from 68. A Deadly Affair is from 67, the Sidney Lumet film. And uh, it's a film about a murder, again, uh, about British intelligence. And a guy who works for the intelligence is murdered, but it's disguised as a suicide. And the guy who has supposedly committed suicide has been accused of being a communist earlier in his life uh, when he was in college at Cambridge or something. 
I forget exactly. And, uh, you know, the senior intelligence officers kind of just want this to go away and leave it alone. But James Mason was the last contact with this guy and suspects murder. And so he's kind of insistent on unraveling this. And his wife in the film is played by uh, an actress, Harriet Anderson, who I don't know uh, if you know Igmar Bergman. One of the, maybe his very first film is called uh, Summer with Monica from 1953, mm-hmm. a kind of, uh, you know, erotic coming of age. I don't know exactly, but uh, it's, he wrote that Bergman for Harriet Anderson. And she appears in this film as the wife of James Mason's character. And she's a, he loves her very much and is true to her, knowing full well that she, she's not exactly a nymphomaniac, but she's very, let's just say very promiscuous and uh, (laughs) not to judge her character, but he, you know, he knows all that. They're open about it. So it's kind of a strange relationship. It's a kind of a dark film. Uh, and Simone Signore is fantastic, and really, you don't, tr- you know, she is not what she seems, her character. So, I don't know, I just found these two, accidentally, I saw them within two days of each other a few weeks ago, and then when I heard about your show, and then this double feature thing, I thought, there's, I mean, first I thought, I'm going to say Zoolander 1 and 2, because no one would expect that from me. And, and, and actually, I love the Zoolander <laughs> films. I think they are really funny. I think Zoolander 2 is kind of a masterpiece. I, I once met Ben Stiller and told him that, and he, he looked almost right through me like, come on, man. I don't believe you. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I feel that. And then he was like, wow, thank you, because... People don't know, but that film was really hard to make, and it almost killed me. And I said, well, thank really? you for doing it, because I, I love that film. Yeah, he didn't go into it, but anyway. Will, Will Ferrell, to me, also is just um, someone that um, his, his, his sheer presence oftentimes uh, gives me the, the giggles. Um, yeah, but the, yeah, and the casting, but the casting, the depth of the different actors in both the Zoolander films is just amazing and very funny. You know, they're great. But then I thought, oh, Agreed. well, people expect me to, you know, pick two Maxo Fools films or, or Orson Welles or Nick Ray or, or even, you know, Buster Keaton, who's one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. Oh, that brings me to a story I wanted to, to stick in here. Uh, Buster Keaton, because it, it's about James Mason, you know, the star mm-hmm. of uh, A Deadly Affair. Uh, and also, James Mason, I just wanted to say, I find him kind of annoying somehow, and yet kind of riveting in his characters. There's something about him that just sort of annoys me to the point where I just can't stop watching him. And that's true in Lolita, or the film he made with Nick Ray, Bigger Than Life, or even North by Northwest. You know, he's done some great things. But one of the greatest things he did in his life was... Uh, not in a film. Uh, Buster Keaton in the twenties, he was married to one of the Talmadge sisters. He, he had a very big, beautiful, like Italian palazzo, Italian palazzo style home in, in Hollywood. And then they got divorced in the, in the mid to late twenties. And, um, he sold that house. His career went down way downhill with, uh, 
you know, talkies coming in with sound. Uh, he became more and more alcoholic, despondent. But in the late, in either 29 or 30, one of the heads of the studios, and I can't remember who it was right now, uh, called in Buster Keaton and said, listen, we are going to uh, take your existing films and reclaim the silver out of the, the prints and all that. So I oh, just right. want you to yes. know that they're, they're, they're gone. So Buster Keaton, one of the greatest directors who ever lived, especially American directors, he is, well, I can go on and on about why I love Buster Keaton. And anyway, that's, I would go on forever. But uh, so he, he lived in for the next like 25 years or something, thinking that his masterpieces that he had directed and starred in and realized that great physical expense to himself, doing all the stunts and breaking his bones every time, uh, he was certain they were gone forever, erased from history. So then in the 50s at some time, and I don't know if all the details are accurate in my story, but James Mason bought the house that Buster Keaton owned in the 20s. And there was a screening room there, and there was a walled-up, like, projection room. And, uh, and James Mason said, yeah, yeah, let's take that wall down, let's expand the whatever, whatever. And in it, they found pristine prints of Buster Keaton's films. So that Buster just forgot that he had there, or I don't know, you know, it was very emotional, his divorce, <laughs> and it was very public. And so anyway, you know, my story is thank God for James Mason that he found those, that he realized what they were. Because what if it was some asshole like, you know, Dick Powell or somebody that's like, eh, throw this shit out. <laughs> so anyway, James Mason. Thank you, James Mason, uh, for that and, and for other things. But he's, he's very good in, uh, in this film, A Deadly Affair, I, I, I find. He is good. I, 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 I find him... I think I find him in a similar way too. And in particular, I want to, I want to circle back about the relationship with his wife in the film too, for the time period, it struck me as a, as a bit of a curveball, their relationship. And it gets into it like right off the bat. I think like she pulls up, you know, very early on in the first few minutes and it's very, their conversation, you know, lets you know that she kind of runs around on him and there's this complexity to the relationship and that, perhaps even it's a compulsion of hers to do this, you know, that's kind of hinted at. I think she even calls herself a nymphomaniac in one of the arguments or something, but it is a yeah, really interesting kind of side, side plot in this whole, in this like, you know, kind of, you know, conventional sort of spy um, genre film to have that um, kind of atypical, interesting dynamic between these two people. And, and the film ends with him, you know, walking her through the airport with his arm around her kind of tenderly. Like, I wasn't sure yeah. when I first saw it, if he was, if he was going like, to sweep her up and like, kiss her. Cause it always seemed like she really wanted him to just like kind of ravage her and he wouldn't. And, um, I didn't know how that was going to play out. And uh, yeah, that, that, that dynamic to me was, was very interesting in this film. I really, I really liked that and appreciated that throughout. Yeah, he goes and retrieves her at the end. It is very tender. It's it's interesting because the sh in the film it's not presented in some kind of moralistic, judgmental way, but it is a weight on his character and his inability mm -hmm. to really, 
you know, physically give her what she really wants from him is because he's hurt, but he still loves her. So it's not a contentious thing. Well, it is. It, I don't know. It's very complicated and interesting. And yeah, film, yeah, it is. It it's is. quite an interesting relationship, you know. She's, she is great. She's fantastic. Um, it's the second pick by, by Sydney Lumet that I've, I've, uh, had on the, on the short life of this program too. Uh, Rowdy Miami oh, really? the other one. So yeah, yeah. I well, mean, he's a phenomenal director. Yeah. Well, and also, um, you know, we gotta, we gotta give a little respect to, to Anthony Mann because he was most known for his, Really, his master his masterwork westerns like Man of the West and The Naked Spur from the early 50s. And then he made some crime films, T-Men and Raw Deal, films in the late 40s. But uh, a really important stylist. He's up there sort of, I guess he's not underrated, but he and like Bud Bedecker and certain other directors that, have sort of been cast as genre directors, uh, made some real, real masterworks of cinema. So hats off to both Sidney Lumet and Anthony Mann for some really interesting, interesting uh, Euro spy, Euro spy film. <laughs> Agreed. One thing in particular about um, a dandy aspect that that I loved, and, and you meant, and you mentioned the sort of complexity of the plot where, where essentially it boils down to you have this kind of double agent who is, who is tasked with finding himself. And, and what I absolutely love about this film is the title sequence. I love I love really interesting title sequences. And this one, you know, features a, a marionette that's, that's sort of tangled up and it does this sort of psychedelic, you know, dance where it's just like, you know, um, completely tangled. And it looks like there's an obscene amount of wires that are controlling, um, this puppet, um, that it goes throughout the title sequence that I thought was so apropos, yeah. like what's to come. I just, I just love that little detail of, of how the whole thing kicks off like that. It really sets the stage so nicely. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. Both of these films are like not Hollywood films, but they have elements of American cinema, both in the directors and the cast. So, but there's a Euro thing, uh, a tinge to them. And that, that, uh, Credit sequence is very like, I don't know, kind of cool, like late 60s kind of thing. Uh, I think it's really great as well. But I got to mention right. one other thing connecting them, which is an actor I'm sort of obsessed with, a character actor named Roy Kinnear. And in A Deadly Affair, he plays the cop, ex-cop friend of, uh, who's a really a badass, you know, who's a friend of... Um, James Mason's character. And uh, he is great. And then he plays a small role also in a dandy aspect. aspect. And he, Roy Kinnear was a good friend of uh, Richard Lester. And they made a lot of films together, How I Won the War. And uh, he was on a TV show called That Was the Week That Was, sort of political com comedy show. Um, he was Mr. Salt, Veruca Salt's father in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But I love this yeah. guy, Roy Kinnear. His character in A Deadly Affair is really fucking great, I found. And he's borderline yeah. narcoleptic in the film, which is also really funny. <laughs> yeah, also another odd 
another odd thing. They'll be having these, you know, planning meetings, and they look over, and he's out, man. He's gone under. I don't know. But whenever there's that. violence or anything, anything tough that has to happen, man, he's there. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, you know, these are diverting films. I think they go well together. They're both a little dark and, and, and very entertaining, too, somehow, and a little odd. You know, they both have odd things about them, for sure. Definitely. Well, thank you, Jim. I think these are really nice picks uh, to go back to back. Um, I think these are, yeah, these are really good. I think are reflective of, of your taste as well, um, which is really nice. What, um, well, thanks. thanks. I don't know. I, my taste is very broad. I'm a self-proclaimed uh, dilettante, so I, I like <laughs> a lot of, you know, I'm interested in so many things without having real deep knowledge probably of any of them. Although I'm trying, I'm still trying to learn how to make films and make music and stuff. So I'm working on it. Well, speaking of which, I know you're always very, um, you know, play things close to the chest. Is there anything that you can share or do you have anything in the works or any ideas or things that you're, you're sort of using this time to, to channel your creativity into that you can discuss at all or? Well, I'm proud to discuss. I don't know if I'm allowed to, but what the hell? Uh, I'm very proud that I'm going to a book of my, I do, I make sort of minimalist, surrealist newsprint collages for years. And uh, the uh, uh, publishers anthology, uh, great publishers mostly have photographic books. And, uh, oh God, they did the last beautiful book of Jonas Mikas called uh, A Dance with Fred Astaire. And they've done a lot of beautiful books, but they're going to publish a book of my collages. So we're working on getting that together. Uh, I was preparing to write a script, but due to the, oddly enough, due to the situation of the planet, I'm writing something else now because what I was writing was a road movie and a bit complicated to shoot. Uh, I, now I'm writing something else that has that's a little more contained. So I'm working on that. I don't want to talk about them very much because I, I, I'm superstitious. So I'm trying to work on those things, and I'm always making music. You know, our band Squirrel, uh, Carter mm -hmm. Logan and myself, and we've worked with Shane Stoneback and uh, Joseph Van Bissum. Uh, we're still making stuff. We have our own little home studios, so we make tracks and sort of pass them back and forth. And then later we sort of assemble them in a studio and work on them together. So we're, we're working on some stuff too, passing some things back and forth, working on some music, scripts, my, uh, my, my collage books. So trying to, trying to keep going. But I get distracted because cool. I, I have the Criterion Channel. <laughs> and you have the, the live nat uh, National Geographic out your window as well, the live channel. Exactly. Yeah, so I'm kind of <laughs> easily uh, distracted, but I'm happy to have some things to work on, too. So I wanted to ask you, why Contiki? Why, uh, why do you name your podcast? Because I'm sort of a fan of the whole, the whole historical thing of Contiki. Well, uh, there is that element to it, but it's secondary for me. The primary reason is that um, I, what I like to do is sneak 
some of my Dayton, Ohio roots and sort of everything that I do is a sort of homage to where I came from and that the town that, that I consider to have spawned so many really interesting minds. Um, the Contiki was a sort of Polynesian themed, uh, ah. kind of strange, uh, cinema, uh, when I was a kid that was very close to my house. So there was, this, uh, oh, wow. there was this place with, with that kind of decor in, in, in North Dayton, which was a weird sort of juxtaposition, but it was a place that always kind of stood out in my childhood as a place to go and watch movies and um, always a place that had a, a, a slightly off-kilter vibe to it. And I've always just had it in my back pocket as something that I wanted to reference at some point. And so, you know, when I, when I decided to do this podcast, um, I thought, well, I'll use that moniker <laughs> for this and kind of wow, tip my hat to uh, the theater. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Oh, I'm glad to know that. Oh, that's cool. I wish I'd, I'd never seen that theater, but I didn't spend much time in Dayton being Akron-centered, you know? I got to say, two, uh, two friends have already been on your, sh- on your podcast. Uh, Wayne Coyne, who I love, I haven't seen in a few years. But uh, he's amazing. And Sarah Lipstate is a friend of ours, a good friend of Squirrel. And we, I think we might have shared a bill before, maybe at uh, uh, Poisson Rouge or something. But I love her music and she's just great. And uh, so we're big fans of her uh, and her music. So that was cool. I was like, wow, okay, good guests, man. (laughs) <laughs> thanks thanks yeah i love her music too and wayne she had some great picks uh that were criterion centric as well so yeah it's all, it's all kind of connective here so far <laughs> well you know it's almost and there are other great companies that you know release uh dvds and there are great companies but criterion for me is like whenever i get the rights back to my films i, I want them to go to criterion it's almost like the archive for me, you know, like I have my films archived and materials in LA, you know, at the Academy archives, but I really feel like the true archive where my films are going to be available is through Criterion. And I've just been a fan since before there was Criterion when it was Janice films and uh, Peter's father. Anyway, I'm big, I'm a Criterion guy. So I'm just really happy they're, they're there for us all. Cool, man. Well, um, you know, all my best to you. Thanks again for hopping on. I really appreciate it. And such a, such a huge Thank fan you. of your work for, from, you know, most yeah. of my, most well, of my life. And it's a real honor to, uh, to have you on and to talk films. Well, man, I'm a fan of your work and I hope I get to see you when all this, uh, this weirdness, uh, changes somehow. That would we'll be nice. That would be the, nice. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck with everything. You too, Jim. Take care of yourself. I'll talk All to you. Right. Take care. I heard that. So that's the show. Man, that, that was that was an incredible talk. You know, I really love talking to Jim. He's such a he has such a unique way of looking at things and um, is really just a, a mountain of knowledge about uh, the history of film. And, and so many other things. So I really want to thank him for being on the program today. We appreciate it. Always keep your eyes peeled for uh, new work from Jim in the future. Uh, most all of his work can be found on different platforms. Uh, Criterion has a lot of them. Uh, Amazon Studios has some as well, but uh, very easy to find uh, all of Jim's films, and I highly recommend each and every one of them. 
Uh, you can follow him on Instagram at jim.jarmish. Follow us on Instagram at Contiki Podcast and stay up to date with new episodes and double feature bonus recommendations that I uh, throw up there from time to time. And uh, make sure you subscribe to us uh, wherever you get your podcasts as well. Make sure you also check out his band Squirrel with partner Carter Logan. Really, really cool band. That is S-Q-U-R-L if you want to look those guys up. If you're also looking for a music documentary, might I recommend Brainiac Transmissions After Zero, now available on Amazon, Vimeo, and iTunes, as well as DVD. Head on over to BrainiacFilm.com to check out the trailer and get more info about that. We'll be back at you very soon with another episode and double feature film recommendation. Until then, stay in, stay sane, and be well.